When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Stories that Jay and I look at this week include is ESG in crisis, compliance, the 45 single. What about fear-based compliance? Does it still exist? A view on corruption from the front lines from Ukraine, holistic third-party management, what kind of person can resist a bribe? Ethisphere announces the world's most ethical companies for 2022. Are cyber whistleblowers different than other whistleblowers? And if you're going to IPO, you better ESG. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for this week in FCPA, episode 295 for the week ending March 18, 2022. The baseball is back edition. As the Major League Baseball owners and the players managed to work out their differences, Tom Brady unretired. Nevertheless, Jay and I are back. And yes, we're back to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. So, Jay, what say ye? I say I am not ready for pitchers and catchers, so I'm still trying to catch up on all the free agency in the NFL. But nonetheless, we'll not worry about my problems, and let's look at the top story of the week. So our top story, Jay, uh, comes through us from our good friend Lawrence Heim, uh, writing over in... Um, Practical ESG in a post entitled Navigating the New ESG Crisis. And uh, it was interesting that, um, uh, obviously, interesting topic, but it also really shows um, how <clears throat> the war in Ukraine has impacted many, many uh, different aspects of daily life. On the one hand, this is the first war that. Um, the consumers and uh, employees of companies really led the charge to get companies to leave Russia. On the other hand, uh, you have to wonder what it's going to do for the E in ESG. Uh, I think the initial shock in oil prices has now subsided a little bit, and there's a tremendous finger pointing about whether it was just greedy oil companies jacking up the price or it was something else going on. But the question remains is, uh, did this uh, event really lead to uh, a need for greater carbon-based uh, energy? So uh, I think that's going to be an ongoing debate. I see an opportunity for a mix of uh, carbon-friendly or climate-friendly uh, energy sources, Jay, and uh, a re uh, less reliance 
on oil uh, simply because the Russian oil has been removed from the world market. What happens when the war is over and all that oil goes back on the market and does the price? Obviously, it will drive it way down and we'll be back where all companies are begging for uh, government handouts. But uh, that's just kind of the ebbs and flows of the energy business. And the impacts on ESG, uh, I think, are going to be uh, long term and they're going to be uh, revealing themselves as we uh, continue to go forward. But on a much lighter note, Jay, we have a Compliance the 45. What does Matt Kelly <laughs> find for us uh, on the music scene? So this comes to us from the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly, on his own Radical Compliance uh, website. And I was a little bit confused when he said the new Compliance single. I thought we were talking singles and doubles, but I didn't believe we were realize we were talking about a new song. So... Uh, Fellow compliance enthusiasts, we have unsettling news from the arts and entertainment desk. The rock band Muse just dropped its new single, Compliance, and um, according to Matt Kelly, it's kind of weird and creepy. For those not musically in the know, which usually includes Matt, Muse is a band out of England. They've been around since the 90s and have had a decent number of hits, like Supermassive Black Hole and Starlight in 2006 and then Uprising in 2009. They're heavy on synthesizers, grinding guitars, and vocals from frontman Matt Bellany. One friend of Matt Kelly's, who's not a, who's a fan, described their, their sound would be, what happens if New Order and Rush had a baby? Now, that's a pretty good description. Anyway, this week, Muse dropped its first single from its forthcoming album, and the single is called Compliance. So, of course, we got excited when we saw there's a new song called C Compliance, and then Matt watched the video, which is linked to in the show notes. Please do the same, and the next three minutes and 42 seconds can speak for themselves. There's a groove that's pretty good, and Bellamy can still wail with the best of them, but technically the music and instrumentation is flawless. Not Matt's favorite Muse song, but definitely a good kickoff for the upcoming album and concert tour. But lyrics about falling into line and staying blindly loyal to authority? I don't know about that. A music video that looks like a cross between Interview with a Vampire and Firestarter? Not really, a, not, not really in step with the message that corporate ethics and compliance officers want to send out about speaking up and adhering to ethical principles even when the price is high. So we'll have to see if there's a second single release from that item. But uh, that has been your musical moment. Tom, why don't you let our listeners know about corporate investigations and the waiver of privilege? Jay, there was recently an interesting decision uh, that has great significance for those who perform internal investigations, corporate compliance officers and general counsels, and frankly, the Department of Justice going forward. It comes to us, um, this article comes to us from the uh, New York University Compliance and Enforcement blog, uh, Andrew Levin Levine. Janice Shevitz and Bruce Yannett, lawyers from uh, Debevoise, I believe, uh, wrote a piece for the blog around a district court decision on discovery. It's from Judge Kevin McNult, and it involves Gordon Corburn and Stephen Schwartz. If those names are familiar, they were former cognizant technology executives who are alleged to have been personally engaged in bribery and corruption. Uh, our listeners will remember the cognizant technology case because of uh, receiving a complete declination. 
uh, a really a great win for Cognizant. But uh, the two were charged criminally, individually, and they have been trying to get the Cognizant internal investigation, not simply the final report, but everything. And what the court ruled was that <clears throat> basically, if you turn over documents to the government, uh, those are uh, any privilege you had was waived. If you turn over summaries of documents, those underlying documents are waived. It's waived as to the attorney-client privilege. It's waived as to attorney uh, work product privilege. And um, this uh, this means that uh, the defendants will get basically everything that the government got, plus the work product that was not turned over to the government. So it's a very far-reaching decision. I can't say that the decision is is out of line or too far really uh, out of line, uh, Jay, but we typically, uh, are, you know, we don't have very many FCPA uh, enforcement actions where individuals are uh, criminally charged. So, uh, and of course, usually they... Um, plead out. But here, the officers of Cognizant had insurance money available as officers under directors and liability insurance, and the defendants have uh, taken basically an unlimited budget uh, for to defend their clients as they uh, are, should do. So really no surprise on the court's ruling. Uh, the breadth and scope may be a little broad uh, or rather surprising, but I didn't find it that surprising. Uh, and really, the reason I named the various interested parties at the start of this, Jay, was that if you're going to do an investigation, you need to understand that what you investigate, how you investigate, what uh, materials you review and what materials you create, those could all be turned over to a third party, not the government. So uh, it's going to put a lot of pressure, I think, on those doing the investigations uh, to not only have a protocol, follow that protocol, and then uh, uh, document everything going forward. So the days of saying, well, we'll just make an oral report and they can't get our work product, those days are long gone. So with that, um, are you currently reading any Hunter S. Thompson, Fear and Loathing? Uh, are you seeing visions of uh, a life of decadence in Las Vegas in the compliance realm, Jay? I, I think you're going for something about fear and loathing, Tom. So we're turning, uh, turning our attention to one of the friends of the podcast, Mike Volkov, and this appears in his own Corruption, Crime, and Compliance blog. Compliance and ethical cultural mandates have experienced a significant transformation. From the early days of compliance, organizations had been pigeonholed compliance into a role akin to that of, quote, law enforcement, unquote. Mike will always recall a meeting with a client years ago when the CCO walked into the room, a senior executive exclaimed, oh, the sheriff's in town. And that was not a good sign. Compliance by fair is not an effective strategy for promoting the purposes of your compliance program to enhance a company's ethical culture and compliance performance and to prevent and deter misconduct. Fair-based compliance undermines the process in many aspects, or respects, excuse me. National decision-making requires weighing benefits and risks. If fear dominates the process, the calculation can be skewed to misrepresent the issues at hand. Fear-based compliance, by definition, is ineffective because it admits a key strategy for effective ethics and compliance program, which is inspiration and commitment to ethical conduct. 
As Mike often says, a company's best control can be its ethical culture. No compliance program, no matter how good, can monitor the activities of every employee. CCOs depend on employees to regulate their own behavior and to report others who may engage in misconduct. Employees who work at ethical companies are committed to the organization's mission in protecting the company from misconduct and harm. This reflects the employee's own commitment to ethical behavior and to the overall mission and operation. It is far better to inspire ethical conduct rather than coerce employees to avoid misconduct through fear-based consequences. Positive messaging often works better than a fear-based strategy. This position is not absolute. Messaging around compliance has to acknowledge the consequences of misconduct and potential harm. Mike's argument is that a singular fear-based message is not as effective as a more robust communication strategy that incorporates positive benefits to ethical behavior and results in reducing risks of government enforcement. The potential harm to an organization's reputation and financial consequences should be included in this strategy. At the center of this effort is the perception and the role of the CCO. A fear-based CCO will be perceived only for enforcement and not as an inspirational leader or value add to the business. Such a perception can undermine not only the effectiveness of the compliance program, but burden overall business performance and employee morale. CCOs should be mindful of this possibility when messaging around ethics and compliance and make an effort to inspire ethical conduct, reward employees that adhere to ethical behavior, and motivate employees' commitment to the organization's values, ethical principles, and sustainable performance. Tom, can you share with us an interview that you and Matt conducted with details on corruption from the front lines? Sure, Jay. Uh, Matt and I had a great interview with our colleague, Tim Kachanov batarov uh, You may also know him as Compliance Man from the Compliance Man podcast series that he and I have done over the years. Tim is Ukrainian by birth and evacuated uh, Kiev uh, after the war started uh, in a harrowing 28-hour, 400-mile cab ride from Kiev to the Polish border. He's now in the Netherlands, and Matt and I caught up with him for a um, Compliance Into the Weeds podcast. Matt also um, wrote a blog post about it, and I've linked to both of those in the show notes. And what Tim really drove home to us was uh, a couple of different things. He obviously talked about himself and the refugee crisis. That was a big part of it. But um, he drew a straight line from corruption um, to the horrors of Vladimir Putin. And that line uh, obviously starts with um, uh, not uh, taking seriously uh, ethics and compliance programs. It moves to uh, illegal conduct um, <clears throat> and then uh, you know criminal conduct. Well, now we've got war. And I had not fully appreciated that line directly. I had, of course, drawn lines from um, corruption to crime to terrorism uh, because of the United States experience around 9-11. But this one, uh, Tim really took, <clears throat> took it in a different direction and drove home that if we allow this type of corruption, you're going to allow power to be concentrated in one or a very small 
a group of individuals. In Russia, that is one, and that's Putin. Uh, although there are the oligarchs, it doesn't seem like they have much to say about this invasion. So um, Tim really made clear that we have to fight bribery, the international scourge of bribery and corruption wherever we find it. Uh, you and I hopefully do that every day in our jobs, Jay, and every compliance officer and compliance professional in the United States and across the globe does so as well. But if we don't, because if we don't, uh, then we end up with a corrupt state like Russia. Uh, Matthew Stevenson and others have written about the corruption in the Russian army uh, over in the Global Anti-Corruption blog. We've cited to that in prior episodes of This Week in FCPA. And he really shows the difference between a army that is corrupt and corrupt at the leadership level, taking monies that would have been spent on arms and weakening the army itself uh, around one of the reasons why Russia has been so militarily inept. Conversely, uh, the Ukraine, or Ukraine, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said the Ukraine. Ukraine uh, has not been corrupt in that area, and in spite of what Trump tried to do uh, to blackmail the Ukraine, uh, they resisted that. Zelensky <laughs> resisted that, and with the armaments now being shipped to the Ukraine, they are able to successfully defend themselves, at least up to this point. So uh, a great interview. I thought it was a significant interview. Uh, Tim is known to, to many folks in the U.S. through Compliance Man, but also he's been a compliance professional for nearly 20 years, uh, largely in emerging markets. So he knows compliance. He knows ethics. Unfortunately, now he knows what it's like to be a refugee. But he really drove home the message that we have to continue the fight against the international scourge of bribery and corruption because now, in addition to leading to terrorism, uh, it can lead to war. So what do we have next from a gang over at Navex, Jay? So we got a double dip now of Mike Volkov plus Susanna Cagle and Carol Williams. And as Tom said, this comes to us from the Navex Global Risk and Compliance Matter blogs. We're going to take a look at holistic risk management. Holistic risk management looks at three main categories of risk that third parties can expose their partners to. First, regulatory, second, enterprise, and third, environmental, social, and governance, which you hear us speaking about every week, ESG. Here, the authors discuss trends in holistic third-party management and considerations that organizations should make to assess and mitigate these risks for this year and beyond. First, we'll look at regulatory risk management. The exponential growth of the modern supply chain, coupled with expanding regulatory oversight, means that third parties can expose an organization to numerous, far-reaching, and often severe risks. The manner of due diligence depends on many factors, including the risk profile of the country at issue, the industry, the extent and nature of interaction with government or state-owned counterparties, whether the third party will retain other third party agents or representatives in conjunction with the work it does for the company. Any party engaged in or contemplating international business must understand how to navigate the applicable statutes, regulations, lists, agency directives, and guide, guidance so as to ensure compliance with U.S. sanctioned obligations. Common prohibitive activities may include importing goods from an exporting goods or exporting goods to a targeted nation. Second, providing a loan or other financing to an SDN or transferring funds to an SDN. 
and facilitating any transactions by a non-U.S. person that would be prohibitive if performed by a U.S. person or within the United States. Prior to entering into any international business relationship, a company should conduct appropriate due diligence of the parties involved. Here's a prediction for 2022 third-party risk management regulatory requirements. In this year, 2022, third-party due diligence will constitute an increasingly important part of the compliance program duties and, con- and consequently the budget. Periodic supply chain audits and screenings against sanctions and prohi- prohibited party lists will become a requisite for successful third-party risk management. Now let's look at enterprise risk management. Third parties also play an important role here in helping a company deliver on its core mission, as organizations rely, rely on third parties for everything from raw materials to distribution and more. Third parties can create and or help reduce risk in a variety of areas, including operational, business resilience, cybersecurity, environmental, reputational, and social. If not properly monitored and managed, these risks could prevent the company from reaching its goals. 2022 prediction for enterprise risks and third parties. Third-party risks will continue to escalate both in volume and impact as companies further streamline in-house operations and focus on scalability. Growing uncertainty both within enterprise industries and the broader economic landscape will elevate the need for a robust enterprise risk framework for both first- and third-party risk. Now the last aspect, let's look at ESG risk management. All ESG risks, including climate-related, social capital, human rights, and governance risks, apply to third parties as Scope 3 risks. From a measurement perspective, Scope 3 often represents over 80% of a company's greenhouse gas emissions and at least twice its human capital footprint. All companies should consider climate-related risks and opportunities when assessing third-party risks. Companies should also assess the human rights and modern slavery slavery risk mitigation efforts for their Tier 1 suppliers, as well as those for contractors and subcontractors. From an ESG perspective, it's important to also include social capital when when considering human capital. Social capital risks include the impact of third parties on their communities and how your business with them affects the impact. Governance risks are also relevant to third parties. Explore procurement policies to encourage supplier diversity, codes of conduct to mutually align on ESG, and general ethics and compliance goals, data acquisition through surveys or other tools. In the next two years, businesses will have an unprecedented supply chain interruption in areas where they have not confronted third-party climate risk. Here are 2022 predictions for ESG third-party risks. Leading companies in each sector that have already begun addressing Scope 3 emissions through the ESG function will be joined by mid-sized companies that have achieved many of their own Scope 1 and Scope 2 targets. We will also see businesses more responsibly partnering with third parties, develop new and alternative financing vehicles, or otherwise invest in infrastructures of third parties. Such investments will include, but are not limited to, physical assets, sets such as PPE and human capital in the form of increased safety, higher wages, greater education and health benefits in order to produce more business continuity and their total value chain. Tom, what's the psychological makeup of somebody who resists a bribe? We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back. 
Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Well, Jay, uh, first-time contributor to This Week in FCPA, Psychology Today, uh, with an article by Gary Drevich about what kind of person can resist corruption. And surprise, surprise, Jay, it is those who have uh, really strong moral commitments and uh, strong moral commitments refer to values we hold dear, like integrity, uh, and it's related to a trait called honesty, humility. People are less likely to act in a corrupt way if they're more committed to their moral values. Moral values are those that are not or perceived not to be for sale, and people don't compromise them even in the face of financial incentives. So when we get psychology today, looking at really the psychology of this, I think it's important for the compliance professional, Jay, because there are going to be some people who have, uh, you know, zero moral values. And whether they are simply amoral, uh, whether they're sociopaths, uh, you need to identify those and you need to have a robust uh, hiring program which weeds those people out. Even if they get through your hiring program, uh, those traits are going to to come up uh, during their work life. And it really, uh, I think, puts point that uh, anecdotally 15 years ago, uh, the the statement was that training is for 95% uh, of your employees. So you're going to be 5% who won't listen, whether they are sociopaths, whether they are amoral, whatever the reason may be that they don't care about um, uh, following the law uh, to engage in sales. And it's always the salespeople or supply chain people, whoever's got the money or wants the money. So I think it really pu- puts a pointed, uh, points a finger that companies need to uh, be more robust in their hiring practices and then their promotion practices. Because if you get these people who uh, don't have the moral fiber and don't have the ethical values and are frankly for sale, whether they're paying or receiving, you're going to get yourself in big problems. So good to see some uh, psychology research uh, behind things that I think many of us have felt uh, uh, anecdotally were true and uh, information to help incorporate into your compliance programs. Um, Jay, we had some dramatic news from Ethisphere this week. What did uh, Ethisphere tell us? Well, uh, first of all, uh, Tom dropped a special Thursday edition of the FCPA Compliance Report. And he spoke to Erica Salman Byrne, uh, who was over there at uh, Ethisphere. And in the episode, they discussed the announcement of Ethisphere's 2022 World's Most Ethical Company Award. And this year's stunning announcement is they revealed a five-year ethics premium of 24.6%. So that means companies who are on the world's most ethical scale Uh, perform almost 25%, one quarter better than their competitors who do not attain this status. Um, Tom and Erica take a deep dive into the ethics premium, including the reasons for its dramatic growth over the last five years. 
2022 had the highest number of new companies on the list. Who were some of these first-time honorees? They speak about that, and they also talk about non-U.S.-centric honorees. The ethics quotient and how was it calculated? I'll recommend you listen to that because it's uh, pretty hard for me to describe it. And then why is the ethics quotient such a powerful tool for the compliance professional? Why were companies so successful? Erica noted that companies seem to have doubled down during the pandemic, spent a lot of resources on managing management training, and that seems to have rippled out through the organization. Finally, a couple more stats before we pass it on. There were 14 first-time companies on the list and also significant changes in DEI. 32% of board seats were held by gender-diverse directors, and 18 companies achieved gender balance. Lastly, 22 companies are now represented. And the last thing Erica and Tom speak about is how you can get your company involved in the program. So it's a great 15, 20-minute podcast and recommend you listen to it. And with that, Tom, what's the story with illicit finance and high-value art? So Jay, actually, we've uh, replaced that. And we have cybersecurity uh, whistleblowers uh, are different which uh, is really an interesting piece that I found in CCI um, by Kinji Price, Mark Schleiber, and Scott Ferber. Um, And they posit that uh, cyber security whistleblowers are different than regular whistleblowers, and they need to be treated um, differently uh, as well. Obviously, we've had an uptick in whistleblowers around this, and we will continue to do so. Um, And they advocate that compliance officers need to both protect and incentivize uh, cyber whistleblowers by uh, treating their complaints differently uh, from the outset, gaming out how to intake and route a cyber whistleblower report, determine who will consistently manage the company's response, Obviously, start an investigation, or as Jonathan Marks would say, do triage, then start your investigation to understand the nature and scope, and uh, to the extent you can, protect the privilege. But I guess, Jay, the the bigger thing is that uh, cyber whistleblowers uh, may be blowing the whistle in an area where there's an ongoing violation, as opposed to an accounting restatement or money taken out of the company via fraud or, or FCPA violation where there was a distinct violation. So an interesting piece. I really had not thought through the implications of a cyber whistleblower and how they might um, be different. But uh, take a look at it, and it may be uh, warranted for your um, uh, compliance program to, to consider something like this. Jay, our last article comes to us from Bob Conlon, our friend, uh, CEO at Navex, writing in Forbes. What does Bob tell us from his Forbes piece? He tells us that, is there an IPO in your future? If yes, you better get your ESG house in order. More companies than ever are making the move to go public, with 2021 setting an all-time record for IPOs and more than doubling that of 2020, which was also a record-setting year. Public companies are not only subject to board inspection, but also to the scrutiny of public markets. With that scrutiny comes a much wider and brighter spotlight on company behavior and management practices. While this attention historically is focused almost exclusively on corporate governance, 
There is now heightened awareness on environmental and social practices as well. Essentially, all three components contribute to an organization's ESG reputation. When you consider boards, investors, employees, customers, and public at large, there are more stakeholders than ever who will hold businesses accountable. What steps should any leader consider before undertaking an IPO? Here's a few thoughts. Practice financial reporting in your com- if your company is already public. This is, a ta- this is table stakes, of course. Practicing financial reporting not only helps get the systems right in place, but it also can help identify any shortcomings or red flags. Consider ESG as part of your organization enterprise risk and compliance strategy. Companies looking to IPO should count ESG risk among their most pressing business risks. You can let your chief compliance officer take the lead of these ESG programs. Next, develop ESG strategies and reporting metrics and demonstrate progress to earn credibility. Include traditional elements of governance like financial reporting and auditing, regulatory compliance and risk management, as well as more emerging elements that have gained stakeholder attention. Consider your organization's approach to DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Measuring your carbon footprint, employee health and safety, as well as employee engagement more broadly, responsible supply chain management and sourcing, and whistleblower policies. Set your goals now by getting a baseline of where your organization stands on at least a few important ESG metrics. You can set goals that are both relevant and accretive to value of your business. The investor focus on ESG also means capital is flowing in the direction of companies that prioritize ESG metrics and report externally on their progress. Leaders should certainly consider that a strong ESG showing can aid their company in attracting pre-IPO capital. By getting your ESG house in order, pre-IPO, leaders will be ready for the microscope that they'll be under once they go public. So Tom, that's our 10th article. What are some of the podcasts that you'd like to highlight this week? So Jay, we had a a great week of podcasts. Uh, It was week three of my four-part visit with uh, your uh, AMI colleague, Audrey Harris. We talked about Audrey moving from the CCO chair back into private practice, but not in her prior practice of uh, FCPA investigations and monitorships, really into uh, a compliance practice. So uh, that posted this week. Uh, Megan Doherty and I are continuing our exploration of the MCU in its entirety, its glorious entirety, I might add. If you haven't watched the entire uh, ep- uh, entire MCU chronologically, um, I suggest you do so. Uh, this is my third time through it, so uh, I'm kind of a geek. But uh, we had Guardians of the Galaxy last week and Saturday uh, part two posts. So uh, and then, uh, Jay, I did a series this week with a good friend from, um, we worked together at Halliburton many years ago, and we've remained friends since then, a guy named Tracy Howell. And Tracy's a well-known tax expert in, in the tax realm. And he, he and I talked about something that I, I had never really uh, fully explored, and I don't think many compliance professionals have, and that's the intersection of tax and compliance. And uh, I really brought uh, many of the concepts uh, that we talk about literally on a daily basis in compliance, uh, we brought them with a tax angle. Uh, so it was a great five-part series. The first uh, episode one was why 
Uh, every compliance professional needs to go down uh, and talk to your uh, tax team. Uh, so go down and buy a cup of coffee if you're back in the office. If not, uh, Zoom them up on a Zoom call and say, hey, I'm Tom from Compliance. Let's, let's have a Zoom coffee. Uh, part two, transfer pricing. One of the biggest issues every multinational company faces is transfer pricing. How does that impact compliance? Part three, why, com- why tax needs a seat at the table. Compliance worked a long time to get a seat at the table, and in, many, in most corporations, I think they do, but compliance needs to bring tax in uh, at the start of a contracting period, at the start of a compliance program, because there are going to be tax implications that, frankly, I hadn't thought of. Uh, part four, uh, tax and supply chain. What is the impact of taxation and uh, in your supply chain? It's a lot more uh, than I thought. And finally, uh, tax and ESG. Obviously, uh, good tax process is a part of a good governance process, so the G in ESG, but there's also tax components in the E and the S part. And Tracy drew those out for us. So check out uh, Taxman on the intersection of tax and compliance. Uh, not only did um, Tracy and I do a five-part podcast series, but I got so fired up, Jay, I did a five-part blog post series. And um, so you can check that out on the FCPA Compliance Report. And then finally, I visited with a local author for the Hill Country podcast, Joanne uh, Easley. And we talked about, uh, she writes uh, fiction about complicated women. And uh, it was a really interesting pod on her um, uh, journey to become a writer. Uh, interestingly, uh, she tried to write when she was younger. She's now retired. And she said it really took a lifetime of experience before she could really ar- articulate her thoughts. So for those of us who started late in life, you know, keep your head up. You can still do it. Um, so uh, lots of good podcasts. What about you, Jay? Any uh, final thoughts on uh, Tom Brady? Uh, I, I just want him to just be happy. I think he, he's out of New England for two years. That ship has sailed, and uh, we need a, a couple tackles to uh, protect our quarterback and let him play 23 seasons like Mr. Brady. So uh, for Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, he can be reached at tfox, T-F-O-X, at tfoxlaw.com. And as always, I'm Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. And you can reach me at the initial J-R-O-S-E-N at affiliatedmonitors.com. And we would like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 295 for the week ending March 18th, 2022, the Baseball is Back, parenthetical, Does Anybody Really Care edition. We thank you for spending your time with us either this week or this weekend. And we hope you'll tune in next week to listen to Tom and I take a look at This Week in the FCPA. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you soon. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to This Week in FCPA. I hope you will check out my five-part podcast series, Taxman, on the intersection of tax and compliance. It's an area that is rarely discussed in compliance, and it turns out there's quite a bit of intersection and overlap between tax and compliance. So check it out, Taxman, on the intersection of tax and compliance with Tracy Howell on the Innovation and Compliance podcast series on the Compliance Podcast Network. 
I hope you will join Jay and I again next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. Jay can be reached at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Finally, if you've not done so, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. It would help our ratings and help get the message out about the only weekly wrap-up of items in compliance this week in FCPA. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.